We were in Matthew chapter 14 last time, where Jesus fed the 5,000. And we spent a lot of time talking about the various things that Jesus was involved in with regard to his ministry in the Galilee region. Over the course of the previous couple of years, he had been mostly centered around the city of Capernaum. That's where Jesus basically had his headquarters, if you will. And I've oftentimes used this little archway as kind of a map for you to be able to look at. Consider this open area, the Sea of Galilee, so that Capernaum would be up in the northwestern corner near the sea. And it was from Capernaum that Jesus got into a boat and sailed across that three or four miles to the area of Bethsaida on the northeast side. After he fed the 5,000, he sent his disciples back, and they were kind of in the middle of a storm all night long until Jesus walked on the water from that area all the way out to the midst of the sea, and he brought them safely to shore, not in Capernaum, but further south in the area known as Gennesaret. From what we can gather, he never does go back to Capernaum. He's in his last year or so of earthly ministry. It's there that he ministered to a multitude of people. And it's also there that Jews from Jerusalem, way down in that that area, which is off the map, came up from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. And that's where we begin our study today in chapter 15 of Matthew's Gospel. The Jews that came were Pharisees and scribes, and they had a purpose. They wanted to know something about Jesus that they could accuse him of. It wasn't because they were excited about all the miracles that he had been doing. It wasn't because of the wonderful teachings that he had presented to the people. It was because of his popularity, and theirs was waning, And he was gaining in popularity, and there was a great deal of jealousy involved. And they wanted to do something that all the people that heard him were absolutely opposed to. They wanted to kill him. That's how desperate they had become. And so they're going from all the way down from Jerusalem up to that region of the Gennesaret on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee for that one purpose to find some means of bringing back to Jerusalem some negative report that they could spread the word about this Jesus who claims to be the Son of Man. And even some believe Him to be the Son of God. Some have been telling people that He must be Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, perhaps John the Baptist raised from the dead, even Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas believed that, you remember. But there were many, many who were beginning to understand that this man, Jesus, was more than just a man. His disciples were certainly coming to that conclusion, finally. In fact, on that event that we just spoke of in the middle of the sea where they were engulfed in this storm and they saw Jesus walking on the water and then he invited Peter to come out with him and Peter did indeed walk on the water with him for a season until he sank, and he only sank because he took his eyes off of Jesus. They got back into the boat, and immediately Mark tells us they were at the other shore, which is that area on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
Jesus had been doing wonderful things, miraculous things, healing the sick, delivering men and women from demonic possession, causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, raising the dead. How could they ever have not understood that this was in fulfillment of what Isaiah and others had spoken of with regard to the one that God would send who was to be their king? They didn't want to receive him as king. They knew nothing of his offer of salvation that was soon to be made. Even though that was also very much in the Old Testament scriptures, nothing was going to completely satisfy them to this truth. They had fixed their hearts on one thing only. We must get rid of this one. How sad. Objection. Even among his disciples, there were some who were followers of Jesus, who were persuaded by the Pharisees and scribes. Eventually, there were many who turned away from Jesus. After the feeding of 5,000, John tells us, that Jesus identified himself as the bread of life. And he had told those who were gathered around him, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall have eternal life. They didn't understand what he was talking about. It was a spiritual statement that he was making. But there were many who turned away from him after that staying. And that wasn't anything of a surprise to Jesus. He knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. And so now we find Jesus having performed all of these miracles and still ministering to the multitude who were coming to him, the Pharisees come along and in chapter 15 of Matthew's Gospel we read these words. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Tradition. Every time I see that word, I can't help but think of Fiddler on the Roof. Traditions can be good. We have traditions in the church today that are good traditions. There's nothing wrong with having traditions as long as they don't deter from what the Word of God says. Now, that's the problem. Many traditions are developed with good intentions, but over time those traditions kind of tend to move away from their original intent and now have a completely different meaning, and it is in contrariness to the Word of God oftentimes. We find that in the church. In certain denominations there are traditions that have indeed turned against the very Word of God for the sake of following those traditions the people have grabbed hold of those traditions and think of themselves as being worshippers of God when there is nothing about that tradition that has anything to do with what the Word of God teaches. It's very, very unfortunate, but it is very true that these things do happen. In that day, the leaders of the religious people, the Jews, who were followers of God, who loved to know about God, were being taught by these Pharisees and scribes the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Now Paul 
speaks a lot about the law of God. David wrote about the law of God. The law is good, and it is. But the law is a schoolmaster. It teaches us about something that God wants us to know. It teaches us that we cannot enter into the presence of a holy God because of our sinfulness. And the law only identifies for us that very fact that we are indeed sinners. And so the law leads us to that place. It's like a mirror that reflects your face. But the mirror can't save you, can it? Neither can the law. Only grace. By grace through faith you are saved. Let you, all of us, let you sink your mind into this. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished that we stand here and are able to say, I am a child of God. By forgiveness that He alone is willing to give to all who would ask. The scribes, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees had no clue as to why Jesus had come. But he had come for that purpose. Yes, if they had received him, he would have been glad to be their king. But in God's foreknowledge, ultimately his purpose was not to become king at that time. Remember, when he was in that region of Bethsaida, after the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to make him king then. That's why he slipped away. It was not the time. We'll find often in our reading of the gospel records, Jesus saying the words, my time has not yet come. He knew when things had to happen, and he knew how they would happen. He knew why they would happen. But here on this western shore of the Sea of Galilee, where the scribes and Pharisees now have come, and they've made this accusation. What's this accusation all about, by the way? They didn't wash their hands in a ceremonial way. It has nothing to do with hygiene. Now, quite frankly, I'm reminded often I've got to wash my hands. And it's a part of what we do in my house. We want to make sure that we have clean hands. But this has nothing to do with cleanness in the physical sense. It has only to do with the tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes that were passed on orally from the time of Moses until that day, in Jesus' time, there were all kinds of oral regulations and procedures, rituals that had to be followed that were based upon what the Old Testament Scriptures had to say. So they had foundation in the Word of God, but they became more important than the very Word of God to the Pharisees and scribes and those who followed after them in the following of those rituals that lost their original meaning and now were the focus the central, central focus of their doing these traditions. It wasn't about looking at what these traditions are pointing to. They became the very essence of their faith in those traditions. And that's what Jesus is saying here. As we read further, he says in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now, that's a scary thing to think about, people. Do we have traditions in our church? Well, yes, we do. But do these traditions that we have circumvent the very Word of God? May it not be so. But that's what they were doing. 
They were taking their traditions and placing those traditions on a higher place than the very Word of God. And Jesus is pointing that out to them here. You think it's important for everyone to wash their hands ceremonially. And in fact, that oral law that I mentioned, it became written code. It was codified over the years, and there are volumes of books that are part of that Mishnah, that's what they call it, the oral law, and they believed that that oral, that composition of what was oral, now in written form, that's, the what, that's what they have to adhere to. Those are the understandings, the interpretations of what Moses had to say. And Jesus is saying, look, that's not correct. You've misunderstood the purpose of the law. You've misunderstood the depth of meaning in the spiritual sense that the law was to convey. And now they're taking that letter of the law and they're applying all of these traditions to what Moses had originally said, but that meaning of what Moses had said has been lost in the tradition. So Jesus is just simply pointing this out to them. You wash your hands ceremonially. You have to put your hands in a certain way. There were 90, uh, 35 pages of instruction on just the washing of their hands. You've got to have a certain amount of water set aside for the purpose of rinsing your hands up to the wrist in this fashion and then turn your hands over to the other side and and more water would be applied and it would run down your elbows and then you'd have to make sure that every part of that arm from the elbow to the fingertip were made clean ceremonially every time they ate. It had nothing to do with hygiene. But that was something that they looked upon as being what makes them pure before the eyes of God. Think about traditions in the churches that you may be familiar with, whether it's the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or any of the other churches that you may have attended. You know that there are traditions in every one of those churches. And again, as I mentioned, we sort of have traditions here. We conduct our services in pretty much the same way. Over the course of time, there is a pattern that we follow. That's a tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with those traditions. And I find it to be very, very useful for us to conduct our services in the way that we do. Other churches have a different set of traditions that they follow. For the most part, all of those traditions are fine. They have meaning. They point to something. And those who are adherents to those traditions really get a lot of benefit personally out of worshiping the Lord within the realm of that which they are familiar. So there are good traditions and there are other traditions that are not good. And again, what makes the difference? Whether or not the tradition teaches us something from the Word of God or contradicts or complements the Word of God. That's what's important. That's why Jesus said to them, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? They had taken that tradition and it was contrary to what God's word had said. Now he's going to point out what he's referring to here and it's a very important thing because one of the very most important of the commands that was given by God through Moses is found in the Ten Commandments. It's right in the middle of it. Thou shalt honor your father and your mother. That was something that they had to take very seriously because it was a command of God in the Ten Commandments. It was central to who they were. They were family-oriented. They still are today. 
and they were to honor their mother and their father to the extent that if they chose to not honor their father and mother, they could be stoned to death. That was a penalty written in the law as a result of those who would choose to do otherwise. So they all took that law very seriously. However, in Jesus' day, one of their traditions was what they called korban. And he's going to explain that to us as we read further in the words of Jesus. So beginning again with verse 3, where he answered them and said, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? He tells what he's implying with that statement. In verse 4, he says, For God commanded out of the book of Moses, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you may have received from me is a gift of God, or a gift to God. That's the Hebrew word korban. It means gift to God. It's dedicated to God. And what he's saying here is, you have done this for a specific reason. In verse 6, then he need not honor his father or mother, because the gift that he's talking about whatever that gift may be, is something that his father and mother cannot be a part of, cannot receive from a portion of that which was given to God. And so they circumvent the law of God by their tradition. And that's what Jesus is saying. Then he need no longer honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You see what is being said by the Lord They thought they were doing well. After all, it was a tradition that was passed on from generation to generation, and they were sincere Jews who wanted to follow after all of what the rabbis throughout the ages had spoken. So it was right for them, was it not, for them to continue following these traditions? But Jesus is saying, look, when the tradition circumvents the true Word of God, the written Word of God, then you have an issue, and that's exactly what they had accomplished. That word korban, again, they used it to prevent themselves from having to honor their mother and father by giving them from what they had of their own possessions to help their parents out. And in so doing, they were circumventing the very law of God. By their traditions, They made the law of God of no effect. Church, beware. Let us never, ever fall into that trap. Verse 7 continues, and this is where Jesus... Well, He doesn't make Himself to be a friend of the Pharisees and scribes. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, but honor me, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrites. Hippocrates, it comes from a Greek word which means masked, two-faced. In Greek culture, there were plays that they would conduct as part of their entertainment system, and they would have masks 
to put over their faces to describe certain emotions. A happy face mask for one who was happy, a sad face mask for one who was sad. And they called that Hippocrates, hypocrites. That's the idea that's being presented in that word. You two-faced, you appear good on the outside. Jesus will later say, inside is like dead men's bones in a grave. Whitewashed tombs, looks good on the outside, but inside, decay, rotten, ugliness. Hypocrites. And he quotes Isaiah 29, where Isaiah does exactly these words are said by Isaiah. They draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. People of God, don't let that happen to us. Many mouth the words. Many talk about Jesus in a way that seems like that individual really loves Jesus. But are they living it? Are you living your life so that what's on the outside is also what's on the inside? That's the way it should be. Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And that's the reason. It's internal. Our hearts, Jeremiah tells us, are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And yet David says earlier, Thy word, O Lord, I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jeremiah will also say that the Lord wants to give each of us a new heart to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that is wanting to be God's own possession. That's what He wants in each of us. And that's why Jesus came, so that that transfusion of His grace and mercy, His righteousness, can be applied in each of our lives. It's an exchange. He gives us His righteousness. We give Him our sins. What a great swap this is for us. But the Bible tells us clearly that Jesus, who knew no sin, took upon Himself our sin. He became sin for you and for me, who knew no sin. That's wonderful news for those of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior and recognize that this wonderful servant of God, whose name is Jesus Christ, became death for us. So we don't honor Him with our lips only, but we honor Him with our hearts. That's what the Pharisees and scribes were not doing. And He points it out to them. And He says again, quoting from the rest of that passage in Isaiah, In vain they worship Me, teaching His doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah, over 750 years before Jesus, spoke about the Pharisees and scribes and said that that's exactly what they are going to do. And they did, exactly as Isaiah had prophesied. And Jesus is here pointing that out to them. And it's a terrible, terrible condemnation of the religious leaders of the day. Verse 10 says, when, they, when He had called the multitude to Himself, He said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. And then His disciples came and said to Him, 
Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard that saying? Oh yeah, they were offended in Jesus. Yes, he knew. It was intentional. Didn't stop and say, oops, I shouldn't have said that, huh? How many times have we said something? Be honest. I know I have. Have you ever said something that, oops, I didn't mean to say that, or I shouldn't have said that, I know it was wrong? You can't take it back, can you? It's like toothpaste coming out of the toothpaste container. You just can't put the toothpaste back in. It's gone. It's out. That's why James talks about the tongue in the way that he does. Be careful with our tongue. It's what comes out of the heart through our tongues that Jesus is talking about. That's what defiles a man. Not what you take into your mouth. And that's what he's saying here. Even his disciples didn't quite get that. He goes on and says in verse 13, but he answered and said, after they said, do you know that the Pharisees didn't really like what you said? Jesus replies to that and says, it's every plant which my heavenly Father has plant, not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. There are blind leaders all over the world who are blindly leading blind people into the ditch. False doctrine abounds in the churches. We need to be careful. Be Bereans. What you hear from the pulpit needs to be confirmed in His Word. So you need to know His Word. You need to read the Word of God. You need to be able to understand that what is being spoken is one or another of two sources. Either its source is the Word of God or its source is the enemy of God. And don't accept everything that comes from every pulpit as being the very Word of God. Even men who study to show themselves approved unto God can make statements that may be misconstrued or even delivered incorrectly. God forbid that that should happen. But it does, and when it does, it needs to be resolved. If it is done intentionally to deceive, get rid of them or her because it's falsely proclaiming in the pulpits across America and around the world. They're blind leaders of blind souls. They both will fall into the ditch. That's a scary thought. That's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees and the scribes. God said, He he didn't plant them. And what God didn't plant has to be uprooted. They will not change. Now, I submit to you that some of the Pharisees and scribes did change after the resurrection. We all have that potential until we take our last breath to deceive ourselves. May it not be so that we continue in that deception. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our ears to Your truth. Help us to know what is right and what is wrong. Help us to know what is good and what is bad, evil or pleasant in Your sight.
Verse 15 says, well, Peter now is going to respond. He says, Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. Explain what you meant by this defilement process that you just mentioned. I don't quite get it. What do you mean by that? As a good Jew, Peter knew that there were dietary restrictions. There were things that they could not eat. The things that they could eat were well-defined. The things that they could not eat were also well-defined. In fact, you'll remember, after the resurrection, the Jews had begun to spread the news, finally, into Gentile territory. And Peter was the first of those who went to Joppa and stayed with a tanner named Simon. And while he was there, he saw a vision. A sheet came down to him, filled with all kinds of animals, creeping, crawling things, most of which were unclean. And then he heard the voice from heaven, Rise, Peter, eat. Well, it was around lunchtime, and Peter was hungry, but he looked at what was on that sheet and said, Not so, Lord, I've never put anything unclean in my mouth. And the sheet went up into heaven again. It happened three times in a row. And then finally on the third time, the Spirit of the Lord told Peter, There are three people coming to see you. They were sent by a man from Caesarea. Follow them. The man happened to be a centurion, a Roman soldier. And it's there in Caesarea that Cornelius and all his house, all Gentiles, were saved, born again. The Holy Spirit came down and baptized them in the Spirit. And they were the beginning of the Gentile church. Peter had said, I don't want to eat anything unclean. And Peter is that kind of a Jew who would make that statement when Jesus talked about those things here in this passage Peter doesn't understand. What do you mean what goes into the mouth doesn't defile? Those things that are unclean would certainly defile me. What do you mean by this, Jesus? Are you still without understanding, Jesus says in verse 16? Do you not understand yet that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? It doesn't matter what you eat. It's in and it's out. Garbage in, garbage out. That's a simple process. We're all quite familiar with that process. It happens to all of us. Well, verse 18 says, but... Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And that's what defiles a man. So he's saying, look, it's from the heart, from within you. It's not external, it's internal. And when it comes out of you, it is either good or it is bad. And it is not returnable to the giver once it's come out. He says in verse 19, explaining, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. You can take that to the bank. Simple truth. You can build a tradition on it. It's good tradition. Because Jesus said it. Well, that ends the story of the Pharisees' confrontation. They hated him without a cause. They wanted to do him harm. They wanted to eliminate him because he was a threat to their prosperity. Contrast that with the next story. And I love the way Matthew puts two contrasting thoughts together in the passages that we oftentimes will read throughout this gospel. He does it here. 
They have been in this area on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is going to take them for a journey way out of the territory of Israel into what is modern-day Lebanon in the area of Tyre and Sidon, still existent today. It tells us in verse 21, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. A Canaanite woman, Phoenician by birth, a Gentile. Now, Jesus had been in the presence of Gentiles before this encounter, always within the territory of Israel. This is his first encounter of a Gentile who comes to him with a need outside of the territory of Israel. Notice what this woman is saying. O Lord, kurios in the Greek, a recognition of his deity, his kingship, lordship over all. And then she uses the phrase son of David. His own apostles hadn't yet used that phrase. But it's a rightful phrase that applies to him alone. Son of David goes back to the Old Testament prophecies in 2 Samuel where David is promised a descendant from his loins who will sit on his throne. She recognized this is who I am speaking to, the very promised one of God. Somehow, as a Gentile, she knew what the Old Testament Scriptures had said. She embraced it. She believed it. And when he came into her region, she knew she had a problem that he could only be the one to fix. So he comes to him. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. That's a serious problem. Any mother would want to have their child well. And in that place where demon possession was so frequent, so common. But this one says she was severely demon-possessed. I don't know what that means necessarily, but it sounds pretty bad to me. Well, verse 23 says, He answered... Not a word. He didn't even acknowledge her presence. He answered not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. It's interesting that they thought about themselves. She's crying out after us. Well, she was crying out after the Lord. But they included themselves in that crying out. They're they're not really wanting Jesus to do anything for her. They want her to be sent away. And then Jesus gives an answer that almost seems as though he's in agreement with that thought. He says in verse 24, he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the second time that that phrase is used. The first time is where Jesus had sent his 12 disciples out to the various towns and cities along the shores of Galilee and in the Galilean region south of the Galilee Sea, and they were to go out to the lost sheep of Israel. Not to the Gentiles, but to the people of Israel only. Jesus is saying, my my purpose 
is to go to just those lost sheep of Israel. She's a Gentile. Why is he saying that? I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's getting ready to set them up for new understanding and hopefully for all of us as well. And by the way, just so that you know, they got it after the resurrection very, very well. In fact, John writes in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, Jesus, while he was with them, spoke on these very things. Talking about the sheep. Sheep were a very, very popular subject as far as Jesus is concerned. And read with me in chapter 10 of John's Gospel and take a look at what he has to say. It's a very lengthy passage, but I'll only read portions of it. In John chapter 10, Beginning with verse 1, Jesus is speaking, Most assuredly I say to you, speaking to his disciples, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Drop down to verse 11. I am that good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. I remember one time I was in Bangor at one of the uh, local stores that had uh, farm implements and uh, all kinds of stuff that you could buy for agricultural needs. And at that store, there was an outside pen in which there was one sheep. And that one sheep, cute little thing, was feeding in the, the hay next to the building. And I went up next to that tent, uh, caged-in area, and I had my two sons and my wife with me, and I started saying, Hey, little sheep, hey, come on over here. And do you think that sheep would do anything? No. It never twitched a muscle in my direction. It never moved from its feeding. But there was a woman who came around the side of the building and saw that I was trying to get that sheep's attention. And that woman says, naming the sheep, Oh, come on, Mary. He wants to talk with you. And as soon as that sheep heard that woman's voice, Meh! came running directly to her, still disregarding us. But she knew the voice of her master. My sheep hear my voice and know it. And I know them. I am known by my own. So the sheep, the lost sheep of Israel, are his own. But get this, what John is going to say next. Verse 16 says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who are the other sheep? That's you and me. The Gentiles will hear His voice. That's the promise of His Word. It's not just the lost sheep of Israel that He ultimately would come for, but at that time, at that moment in His existence as a man upon the earth, it was His purpose, His plan to minister to the Jews because there was a reason for that. But it doesn't exclude the rest of us. It was just... A matter of timing. 
But here, in this particular place, a Gentile woman has come, but it wasn't the time for her to receive what the Jews were to receive. And Jesus is just simply acknowledging that fact by saying, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And verse 25 continues and says, Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. The song we sang today, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer. We desperately need you in this last day. Oh, God, respond with favor toward your children. We need you. Lord, help me. How many times in the words of David, written in the Psalms, have you read those same kind of appeals? Help me, O Lord. Psalm 80 was a great example of that request of the believer of the one who wants God to move in the, 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 the affairs of men. Lord, you brought this vine into this land. You planted it. We've reached our branches out to the sea and out to the river. We became strong. And now look, Lord, they're oppressing us. They're doing all kinds of evil things against us. Have you forgotten us, Lord? How many times have you read that in the Word of God? How long, O oh God, have you forgotten your people? But there's hope in that very same passage that we read this morning in Psalm 80 where it says, I will serve my God and I will trust in Him to save me, to redeem us, to revive us. Oh, we need revival in the church as well as they do and did in that day. May God do for us what the psalmist requested. And we need it desperately in these last hours. This woman needed it desperately in this time of crisis in her life. I need your help, Lord. Help me. And finally, Jesus does answer. It almost sounds like a derogatory statement that he makes. Listen. He answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread, a reference to the people of Israel, the children's bread, and to throw it to the little dogs. Sounds cruel, doesn't it? Dogs in that day were not considered to be of any use, primarily to the people in Israel. Wild dogs. They traveled around in packs, and they were... Danger, oftentimes, to the people living in the communities when the wild pack of dogs might attack individuals who were careful to be walking in a place where the wild dogs couldn't attack. The phrase that Jesus is using here, little dogs, is a reference to what we would call a pet. They did have little dogs, or pet dogs in their homes. Not everyone, but they were common, fairly common, among those who could afford to do so. And so he's not using this as a derogatory statement, and she knew what he was talking about. By the way, I'm reminded, you all know Sarah Lawhorn. We had a slide that had information about her ministry. She's from us here at Safe Harbor Church. She's over in Iraq, northern Iraq, in the Kurdish area of northern Iraq, ministering to refugees in that region. 
Sarah was on the phone with Sandy recently, and she was telling her something that had happened to her. She had come into contact with a young lad, probably seven or eight years old, and he came up to her and asked her her name. She told him, and she asked, what's your name? And his name is Isa, which is Aramaic for Jesus. Oh, Isa, I love that name. Well, they had a short conversation, and he went his way, she went hers. The next day or so later, Sarah is walking toward the village where she ministered. And she sees that young lad off to the side of the road, and he starts running in her direction. And I think she must have thought, well, he's coming to greet her again. But instead, he went behind her, and as she saw him go back in that direction, she turned and saw him confront a pack of wild dogs, and that little boy, whose name was Isa, said, Stop! And that pack of wild dogs left. Isa. Wild dogs. Not what Jesus is talking about here. Little dogs. Family dogs. They sit at the table, and that's common. The children's bread is oftentimes thrown to the dogs so they can have something to eat. And she recognizes that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs from which, crumbs which fall from their master's table. Look at what she's saying. She didn't go away and discuss saying, call me a dog, huh? I'm out of here. Most of us probably would respond that way, right? She did not. She said, but look, that's true. But even the dogs benefit from being near the children because the crumbs that fall from the table are given to them as well. They benefit from that which is given to the children. Why could it not be so for me? That's what she is saying. And as a result of her responding in that way, look at what Jesus says. Verse 28, Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire to you. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. O you of great faith. There's only one other place where Jesus uses the phrase, great is your faith. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, we read about it several weeks ago now. The centurion had come to Jesus. His servant was sick, and he wanted Jesus to heal his servant. He said, I know that you are able to do this. And Jesus said, well, I'll come to your house and I'll heal him. The centurion said, no, 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 you don't need to do that. I'm a man of authority, just like you. And I know that as a man of authority, I have people under me. And when I say go, they go. And when I say do, they do. What he was saying to Jesus is, I know that you have that kind of authority. If you say that he is healed, I'll accept that as being true. And I'll go my way. You don't have to come to my house. And Jesus' response to him was, great is your faith. He never said that to his disciples. The only thing that he mentioned with regard to faith to them is, oh, you of little faith. More than once, mostly to Peter. Perhaps to you and to me. Oh, you of little faith. Where is your faith? How much of what God has promised do you really believe? Are you a person of great faith? Like this woman who wasn't part of the family of God, 
who was an outsider hoping to find some little bit of help and getting far more than what she expected. Her daughter was healed from that very moment. I don't know how long it took her to get back to her home to find that out. But she knew that Jesus was willing to give her more than just a few breadcrumbs. She was a woman of great faith. And I wonder if she'll be one of the first ones we meet in glory. A Gentile. There's no mention of her elsewhere in the Word of God. But God chose to let us know about her here because God wants us to have that same kind of faith. My prayer is that we all have great faith in these last hours. When you look around, you see the contrast between the Pharisees and this woman. Look around at our culture today and see the differences in opinions that are out there in various places and in various ways there are contrary things being said. Not only contrary things, but evil abounds in the minds of men and women everywhere around us. The philosophies of the world have taken a hold on them. And just like with the Pharisees and the scribes, they have traditions that they have adhered to and they will not let them go unless God intervenes. That's where you and I come in. We are to be like this woman who came to Jesus knowing that she wasn't deserving of any of this, but somehow believing that if she was able to get close to Jesus, that He would respond favorably to her need. We need to be like her so that people who don't know Jesus can see that there is a way for them to receive from Him that they have not known of. It's by faith. It's not by ritual. It's not by any kind of tradition that may be available even in some of the churches where they may be attending. There are a lot of Christian churches out there, are there not? They call themselves Christian. Are they really? We call ourselves Christian. It better be so. Christ follower. That's what Christian means. Imitators of Him. Willing to do the Lord's will as He was. Behold, I come in the volume of the book it was written of me. I come to do Thy will, O Lord. People of God, let that be your constant desire. And watch God move in your midst.